0: be seated. Uh, We are kicking off uh, a new series and uh, we're going to be in the book of Revelation. So I'd ask you to turn to the book of Revelation. Nice and easy. It's at the end, right? Um, But before we do, I do want to uh, pray uh, particularly along the lines of some of the burdens that I know some of you are feeling at this point. Um, and this was, not, this was not orchestrated by me in terms of what we would um, pray about this morning, but we're going to be praying for the addicted, uh, as well as those who are just like feeling alone during this season. Um, So those were the two categories that actually were chosen by others, but I know those are some of the burdens that we even carry uh, this morning. Um, Before praying for that, I do just want to announce uh, simply the barrels. We mentioned this last week, the barrels to Liberia. God's given us a connection uh, with a man named Pastor Mark. It's actually, he's from the area here, uh, but he had planted a church in Liberia, come to find out that our denomination has many connections right in that area, literally like a mile away from where they are. And so we're trying to create some partnership with uh, them. And so we've been hanging out with Pastor Mark now for several weeks. Uh, And we've come to find that one of the ways that we can serve that particular church plant is by sending a few barrels. And like pretty much they could use anything uh, when it comes down to it, Uh, but any particularly footwear, Notebooks, schooling materials uh, are helpful, as well as kind of any hygiene, um, whether it's toothbrushes, toothpaste, or soaps, or those kind of things. So any of that can get shoved into these barrels, and we'll be sending them over to Liberia, hopefully uh, sooner uh, than later. So uh, we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Revelation verses 1 through 3 this morning. So let's pray, we'll jump into it. God, once again, we are thankful um, that you are near to the brokenhearted and you save the crushed in spirit. So Lord, we we even now um, ask for those who are suffering from addiction. God, we ask for your intervening grace to be encountered. God, where where the chains of addiction seem all so strong, God, you are stronger yet. You are the God of the impossible. You are the chain breaker. You are the mountain mover. And so we pray for those who are suffering from addiction. God, we ask again that you would intervene with power. We ask that you would intervene with redeeming grace that you would break the chains of addiction, that you would break, even at such a greater, deeper level, uh, that you would break the lies that often attend addiction. God, we pray for truth to reign. And even as the prodigal son sat in his shame, God, I pray that those who are in the throes of addiction God, that your incredible compassion and love would break into their dark shame. And that you would ultimately break this cycle of addiction. For your own namesake, God, receive the glory in these things. Show yourself. Show yourself. Show your grace. Show the power of your mercy at work. We will give you thanks for it. God, we also pray for those who are at home, particularly during this season, who are feeling the loneliness of the moment. And um, God, we pray even, even against the ways in which the enemy would try to exploit that weakness. God, I pray that uh, those who feel the overwhelming kind of burden of loneliness, God, that your presence would be known. But I, I pray as as the church is meant to function that the body would also tend to those who feel uh, lonely during this season that community would happen, even if it has to happen at some sort of distance, through some sort of means, let it happen so that the grace that you supply to us that is meant for one another might be felt and might be known during this time. But again, we pray against the enemy. We are in a cosmic battle and so we pray against the enemy who would want to take that loneliness and shove it in our face time and time and time again To remind us what we don't have when you have given us yourself and all that we have lost is firmly in your hand. You are with us, and you have us, and you even have the very circumstances and situations in which we have felt lost. So we run to you. We look to you. In our loneliness. In our burdens, we look to you. So God, make your presence known, we pray. We hunger and thirst for you. In our desperation, we, we come to you. We cast ourselves at your feet and say, God, work for the good of your people, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Before we jump into the text itself, I just want to briefly state, before jumping in to the book of Revelation, is that the purpose, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to stir the church toward an enduring hope and holiness in Jesus Christ, so that she might Overcome. All right? The purpose of the book, Jode? The right. <laughs> purpose of the book a Revelation is to stir the church toward an enduring hope. That enduring hope means there's going to be opposition, right? Enduring hope and holiness in her sovereign victor, Jesus Christ, so that she might overcome. Again, overcoming is assuming that there is going to be opposition. There's going to be pushback to your relationship with the Lord. There is going to be cosmic war. It's going to be felt within and without. But the purpose of the book of Revelation is to stir the church toward an enduring hope and holiness in her Savior, Jesus Christ, so that she might overcome. That is the purpose, and I just want to throw that down before we even jump into the text. Revelation chapter 1, we're going to be considering mostly verses 1 through 3 this morning. It's going to be a little teachy, then preachy, because there's a whole bunch of baggage when it comes to the book of Revelation, so just hang on this morning. So we're going to be covering somewhat of verses 1 through 3, but I want to read verses 1 through 8. So, Holy Spirit, Help us. Help us now to reap the benefit of this word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel To his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Those are important words. Blessed then. (laughs) Check this out. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. You're, You're blessed if you jump into the book of Revelation and study it. Right? That's what it's saying. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. Isn't that helpful in this season? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Man, there's just no better opening to a text of Scripture than that. Incredible. Now, as, as one theologian states in reference to the book of Revelation, the church throughout history has cried wolf too many times. As you study church history, you can find that from almost every century, church leaders have attempted to predict the fulfillment of the book of Revelation in their lifetime. From as early as the second century, Montanus predicted the coming of the new Jerusalem. In the third century, it was Novation who gathered a crowd to await the imminent coming of Jesus Christ. In the fourth century, it was Donatus who sought 144,000 uniquely chosen individuals to invoke the return of Christ. And so on and so on and so on throughout history. It's happened again and again and again throughout the centuries, particularly then at the turn of the centuries, or in times of, just kind of think about our own context and setting, in times of war and plague, or during times of political and economic unrest. It's happened all through history, all the way up to our modern day where we would recognize it in the likes of, remember, Hal Lindsey, uh, the late great planet Earth, or more recently, Harold Camping, right? 94, he gets it wrong, he takes another stab at it in 2011, once again, gets it wrong. From century to century, the church has cried wolf too many times. They have schemed and attempted to anticipate the fulfillment of the book of Revelation in their lifetime, and let's just say it, everyone has failed. So why does that matter for us? It matters because the historical baggage of this book inevitably has an influence on you it inevitably has an influence on me on one hand the historical baggage of this book tempts us to approach the text like it's a code to crack right like it's a crystal ball to be discerned so often this mystery this conspiracy approach to the text is more informed we just got to say it by movies right whether it's kind of the Thief in the Night movies that you would have seen in church or whether it's just modern day apocalyptic movies. You come to the text with all that baggage. You're interpreting the text according to those things more than by the text itself. So we oftentimes come with this conspiracy approach that's more informed by movies, book series, good old left behind, you know, those meticulous timeline banners, right, Then, by the very text itself. The text, let's just say it, is not a code to crack, right? On the other hand, if it's not to come to the text with some sort of conspiracy perspective, most of us are left not approaching the text at all. I don't even want to go there. That's the reason why I didn't want to go to the book of Revelation about a year ago. So I'm praying, and Lord, what are we supposed to do in 2020, right? I don't know. And he's directing me to the book of Revelation, and I'm saying, absolutely not. I don't want to go there. There's too much baggage there. I'd rather just have a hands-off approach at this point. Can't we go to somewhere just kind of practical and easy and just, just kind of take it easy in 2020? No, God, I just feel like God wants us to go here. So we have to be careful of coming to the text with both this conspiracy approach, but also then this, this, this hands-off approach. No, I've got to keep that thing at a distance. For many of you, it's the hands-off approach where you kind of say, well, if, if, if the bigwig scholars can't figure it out, then why should I even begin to attempt to figure it out? Now, in either of these cases, the conspiracy approach or the hands-off approach, the problem is this. We miss out on the benefit of the book. Again, the book is to be a profound grace to the church. It promises blessing. Not just in the opening verses, but as you get to the end. It's like book ended by blessing, promises of blessing to those who read this, to those who hear it, to those who apply it to their lives. There is blessing to be had. There is benefit to be had from this book. It is a profound grace to the church, a grace that imparts this persevering strength so that she might, as the text will say, as we'll see, she will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of her testimony, that she might join in one day in the wedding feast with her Savior, that she might one day eat of the tree of life. The book of Revelation, again, is a grace that stirs up the church to an enduring hope and holiness in her sovereign victor Jesus Christ, so that she might overcome. There is, in other words, remarkable benefit to the book. So in order to gain something of this persevering grace, to gain something of a benefit from the book of Revelation, the next two weeks, today and next week, we're going to cover seven principles In keeping with the book of Revelation 7, you'll see it all over the place, right? Seven principles for rightly reading the Revelation. I thought I could manage all seven today, but that was just not going to happen. So we're going to get three in today. All right, let's jump right into it. How do we even begin to benefit from this book? First and foremost, the Revelation is meant to be understood It's meant to be understood. In verse 1, we're told that God is not attempting to conceal something. He's not attempting to make things confusing for us. Rather, his purpose in verse 1, it's like, for all the wrong ways we take this book, the beginning word of the book is revelation, The whole point of this book is not to conceal, but to reveal. The whole point of the book is not to confuse, it's to inform. The revelation of Jesus Christ. You might recognize the Greek word revelation, it's apocalypsis, right? It is the apocalypse. Of Jesus Christ. Now the word does not refer to some sort of doomsday, end time kind of stuff. The word actually is that word, we typically go that direction. This is all about end times when we hear hear the word apocalyptic, but that's more culturally bound to our moment than it is to the moment of the writing. The moment that it was written, apocalypsis simply meant this, to reveal. The, it's the unveiling of the true nature of something. Again, it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with end times, doomsday, you know, dig out your bunker kind of thing. It has to do with simply God pulling back the curtain on something that we didn't quite see clearly, and now God is saying, Oh, here's heaven, heavenly perspective for your earthly experience. He's pulling back the veil. One of the ways that we've illustrated this is, of course, is with Clark Kent, right? There's Clark Kent, you know, he's working in the, as, as a journalist and all this kind of stuff, and then trouble hits, and what happens? Well, Clark Kent's on the move, and Clark Kent is perceived as just the journalist, but as he's on the move, he's pulling back his shirt, and all of a sudden, the unveiling, the apocalypse is taking place. You're beginning to see this anxious just Clark Kent, He's not just a journalist, this is the guy, this is Superman, right? That's apocalypse, according to Scripture, right? It's just a revealing, and this is the nature of the book. Its very essence is meant to reveal, not confuse. It's meant to unveil, unveil, not obscure. The purpose of the writing, even a little bit further, has its articulated in verse 1, is so that John will show to his servants what will soon take place. It's to be seen. It's to be revealed. We are to benefit from this book. In other words, it's in your grasp to understand. It's not something that is some sort of code to be deciphered. Now, God, in the first few words, is saying, this is in your grasp to understand. There is benefit from this book to be had, and it is there to be understood. So we can grasp it, and therefore we can benefit from the grace that it supplies. First and foremost, we have to come to the text knowing that the book of Revelation is meant to be understood. Second, though, the revelation is meant to be understood through symbolism. Here's why the book of Revelation is often filled with conspiracy. The word apocalypsis, revelation, not only points to the fact that the book is to be understood, it's a revealing, but it's to be understood primarily through symbolism. You see, we're being tipped off in these first two words of the book. We're being tipped off to the genre of the book, right? Right? For instance, uh, you, know, you go into a library, and as you walk into the library, there are all these different genres sectioned off in the library. Where you go in the library takes you to specific genres, types of writing, styles of communication. Right? The genre of the book of Revelation right, is Apocalyptic. When you enter into the library of the Bible, there's 66 books, right? You best know what genre you're pulling off the shelf, right? Things can get quite confused when you don't understand the genre of the text that you're stepping into. To illustrate it from modern, even this past week, right? President Trump is tweeting about Babylon B, right? But if you've ever like, taken a look at Babylon B, that blog post, it's satire. It's not reality. It's meant to kind of poke fun. It's, it's comedy, right? But there the president is taking it seriously and tweeting this, and, and so what's the mistake? He's pulling off the book from the shelf not knowing what genre it actually is. So when we come to the book of Revelation, we better know what genre it is. The style that it's communicated in is apocalyptic, right? And apocalyptic literature is all about symbolism and images. The style of writing, the particular way it's communicated is to be communicated through uh, symbols and images. This is the typical style that you will run into specifically throughout uh, scripture when it refers to dreams and visions. So when the prophets are having dreams and visions, they're often employing apocalyptic uh, communication or style. They're using symbols and images to communicate their point. As one author states, he says, the book of Revelation is a book of symbols in motion. In other words, when you step into this book, it's going to be a parade of symbols and images that are going to be put before you. And as verse 1 states, these things are to be shown. It's it's a visual. It's all about the visual when it comes to the book of Revelation. These things are to be shown to the servants. Or as verse 1 goes on, verse 2, that God is to make it, will make it known. Right? Literally, the, the idea of making it known is to signify through symbols. Right? So God's making it known these things are to be shown. It's why verse 2, John is to testify to all that he saw. Right? So the apocalyptic literature is going to be all about symbols and images. You should expect that kind of stuff. It's going to be weird, in other words. But the purpose of this genre is to unveil reality as it is, with shocking truth but comforting hope. It's not to get you all like fired up with fear driven by conspiracy. It's actually to confront you with shocking truth but comforting hope. It's intended in some sense to challenge what we are just all too familiar with in our own worldly perspective of things. It's the challenge, the ways in which we understand our own experiences, the purpose of apocalyptic literature more specifically is to provide heavenly perspective for our earthly experience. Don't we need that? Don't you feel like you need that during a season like this? When everything is crazy. Everything is backward, and everybody wants to just take political perspectives in these moments, and yet God is saying, no, there needs to be heavenly perspective brought into our earthly experience. Apocalyptic literature is so necessary for the moment. But yes, it will shock us. With symbolism, there will be all kinds of paradox. What you think to be true in your earthly experience is actually backward according to the heavenly perspective. So as one author writes, he says, for instance, the church in Smyrna, which we'll see in the coming weeks, will appear poor in earthly experience, but is rich according to heavenly perspective. It's a church that is opposed by those who claim to be Jews, but according to heavenly perspective, are Satan's synagogue. Satan's behind them. The church of Sardis has a reputation for life. Man, things are happening. Amazing stuff is going on. And yet, from heavenly perspective, it is a dead church. The church of Laodicea thinks itself rich and self-sufficient, but according to heavenly perspective, is destitute and naked while we also see the lion who conquers. He conquers, but he does so as a slain lamb. Everything's on its head when it comes to this apocalyptic literature, or the beast that eventually shows up. Ooh, who is the beast, right? The beast will seem invincible. He will seem as though he is able to conquer the saints by slaying them. Chapter 11, chapter 13. But it will be the saints' faithfulness to Christ unto death that proves their victory, just as Jesus overcame through death unto life. This is the beauty, this is the genius of apocalyptic literature. It shocks us through these visuals, through paradox, through shock value. These symbols and images convey heaven's perspective for our earthly experience. Now, we have to say a few things here, if I can get my notes to move. There we go. How, and this is crucial, How are these symbols to be rightly understood? How are these symbols to be rightly understood? The third point, the third principle is the revelation is meant to be understood in light of scripture. The key to understanding apocalyptic literature is scripture itself. Scripture is meant, and we gotta just, like, get this in our heads. Scripture is meant to interpret scripture. Scripture is meant <laughs> to interpret Scripture. In other words, we are not to impose our own context upon the text. I heard this kind of stuff growing up. The giant mutant locusts of Revelation chapter 9, as weird as they are, they are modern day Black Hawk helicopters. John just didn't know what he was seeing when he saw those Black Hawk helicopters. Or the Beast of Revelation is not a supercomputer from Belgium that is said to control the economy through invisible markings on the head and hands of its consumers. But I've heard that as well. We aren't to impose our context on the text. It does grave injustice to the text. Right? Scripture is intended to interpret what? Scripture. (laughs) Don't pull away from that reality or you are going to get in trouble real quick. So just think for a moment. The whole movement of the book of Revelation could be summed up symbolically by a slain lamb who overcomes a serpent-like dragon. We could, we could sum up the book of Revelation just by those symbols. A slain lamb who overcomes, by a, uh, who overcomes a serpent-like dragon. Are, are we to impose our cultural context upon that? Yes or no? No. No, certainly not. If, if anyone knows a bit about their Bible... They would quickly come to recognize that the slain lamb is not a literal slain lamb. The slain lamb is not something from our own context that we need to superimpose into the text. No, the slain lamb is who? Jesus. Scripture interprets scripture. Do you see? Who is this serpent dragon? Satan, right? From Genesis chapter 3, we begin to see that whole symbol begin to grow and develop throughout the storyline of Scripture so that when we come to the book of Revelation, we actually know what it means. When it comes down to it, the symbols in Revelation are not to be signifying anything from our own context that is to be imposed upon the text, but rather the symbols in Revelation are like hyperlinks back into the storyline of Scripture that fill out the meaning of the symbols, so by the time we get to Revelation, we know what the Revelator John is actually saying, right? Scripture is meant to interpret Scripture. Now, I, it's true that the imagery won't always be that easy to discern. Granted, there's, there's some tough stuff in the book of Revelation, But in the coming months, I think it'll be plain that even the larger movements of the book of Revelation that that are sectioned off, you're going to see that there are these sections, these three cycles of seven judgments, right? That point us back. They're going to be pointing us back again and again to the imagery, particularly of the Old Testament. And what we'll find is that there's going to be references to the flood account, and there's going to be references particularly with the trumpets back to the plagues of the Exodus account. But there's also be imagery used from the uh, account of the exile in the Old Testament. So again and again, what Revelation is doing through the symbols is creating like hyperlinks to point us back, point us back into the text, to point us back into the text again and again to see the symbols that they were used in previous ways and developed throughout the storyline of Scripture so as to fill out the meaning of Revelation itself. Scripture will interpret Scripture. It's the way... The apocalyptic literature was intended to work and when it works that way, you will begin to recognize that the book of Revelation, the Revelation, is a literary masterpiece. Not just because John was quite the author, but because there is a big A author who is superintending the writing of all of scripture. And it all is interconnected in such profound ways, such that it would clearly portray something of the glory and beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Scripture must interpret Scripture. Now, I wanna just kind of speak into three brief considerations on this particular point. In apocalyptic literature, as Scripture interprets Scripture, we're called, To err on symbolism rather than literalism. And I know this is where things get teachy, you know, okay. Like, how is that practical for me tomorrow, right? Well, if we rightly interpret the text, the text will be radically important for you tomorrow, right? We need to know how to handle the Bible. Scripture will interpret Scripture, but when it comes to apocalyptic literature specifically, we are to err on symbolism, not literalism. If you err on literalism, taking everything literal, you're going to be a heretic by verse 5. Right? God is not nine persons in one, Father, Son, and seven spirits, we read. right? He is three persons in one. It's simply a reminder that we are to err on symbolism, and even so when it comes to numbers. Seven spirits, if we would look. At the text, the Old Testament, we would be heading back both to the Genesis account as well as to Isaiah, which refers to the sevenfold spirit, who is not seven spirits, but one spirit. Right. So we need to err on symbolism. Where the text would lead us toward symbolism, we need to err on symbolism. It's the way apocalyptic literature functions. Even numbers will have symbolic significance at Now when you go to the rest of scripture, don't forget. Know what book you're pulling off the shelf, what kind of genre it is. Because at other points in scripture, numbers are not going to be symbolic. And you need to be careful not to take the same way of understanding the book of Revelation into other portions of the Bible. That'll create confusion as well. But when it comes to the book of Revelation, which is primarily apocalyptic in nature, we need to err on symbolism, not literalism. Second, We need to be careful not to press too hard on the symbolism. Apocalyptic literature is similar to the parables of Jesus. If you try to gain meaning out of every detail of the parable of Jesus, you will lose the meaning of the parable. It's meant to communicate a general idea, not to give you a bunch of specifics for you to try to find the meaning of. It's, It's almost as if the harder you squeeze on the text, it's like you lose the meaning of the text. Growing up in Minnesota, we love fishing. If you grab onto a fish too hard, that thing's going to just fly right out of your hands, right? You come to it delicately, getting up underneath the gills, right? There's a right way to hold on to a fish, right? But if you squeeze it too hard, you're going to lose it. The same is true with apocalyptic literature. You're going to squeeze too hard on the meaning of that text, and you're going to lose the meaning of the text. So when it comes to this symbolism, don't try to go after every detail that might be being symbolized. Get the major idea, get the big idea, and continue on. So err on symbolism, not literalism. Be careful not to press too hard on the symbolism. But finally, this is just something I wanna encourage us toward. Be careful not to impose your own end time assumptions on the text. For many of you, when it comes to the book of Revelation, you might be aware that there's several schools of interpretation when it comes to the book of Revelation. Some think that the book of Revelation, in large part, has already been fulfilled. Other people think that the book of Revelation is largely yet to be fulfilled, right? And still others say, well, in principle, it is being fulfilled, right? So you have these different perspectives, and still yet these constructs of premillennialism, postmillennialism, millennialism that we bring into the text now if none of that stuff makes sense to you right just fill in the blank with what however you assume the end of the age is going to take place whether whether that's the left behind kind of rapture moment or whether it's like doomsday zombie apocalypse kind of stuff it just doesn't matter right Uh, whatever your perspective of the end of the age is be careful not to impose that upon the text. The point is, let's deal with the text first. See what the text says before coming to conclusions, right? And by the end of the book, then we can come to conclusions and say, yeah, I think I'm a premillennialist. I think I'm a amillennialist. And hopefully you don't come to the conclusion that you're a post-millennialist, but we'll just leave that for them, <laughs> All right. Let's allow scripture to interpret scripture, right? Let's do the work of understanding our Bible and then draw conclusions from it. Now, here's the beauty of doing it this way. You may say, this was kind of teachy this morning. I came in with burdens that I really needed to be cared for, you know? Get get what's happening here. If you don't know how to handle your Bible, you will not know how to gain the benefit of the Bible, right? This is the hard work in some sense. But this, don't don't mistake it, and this is what I want to conclude with. What we are doing here in all the practical stuff and trying to figure out the book of Revelation is no different than what was being spoken of last week. We want an encounter with the Almighty God. Right? Don't you feel your need for Him? Right? Right? This is no different. The work that goes into understanding his word is no different. It's not some different category as though it's not part of the pursuit. It is absolutely part of the pursuit of his presence. Because he says, as you come to read this, as you come to apply this, there will be blessing. And when God promises blessing, he's not just promising like he's going to toss you along Hail Mary from a distance. Here, have a blessing. You know, hopefully you catch it. No, when it comes to blessing, blessing is all about God's very own presence being realized in the moment. Right? When he comes, oh, there is blessing. It comes from his hand. It comes from his hug, for crying out loud, right? It comes Then, in knowing his love and knowing, yes, that he is a consuming fire, so it's not only uh, helping me understand that there is such comfort with him, but there is now a need to pursue holiness all the more, right? So when it comes to this book, while these seem to be just kind of stale principles, perhaps, oh, don't see them as stale principles, this is all a part of pursuing your Lord and Savior, such that even as the text would say, such that we overcome, that we become the conquerors that Jesus died for, right? That we would share in his victory, that we would share in his comfort, that we would endure well both with hope and holiness. This is the point of the book of Revelation. Folks, that we ourselves might benefit from it and overcome. Finally, as we enter the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, we have to be careful to also recognize, yes, this is a pursuit of God himself, but in pursuing God, we need God's help. Jesus will use this same word, apocalypse, when he speaks to Peter after Peter has just rightly proclaimed who Jesus is. You are, Jesus, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say in response to him? Blessed. (laughs) You got it right, Peter. Blessed are you. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood has not apocalypsed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Not only is a study of the book of Revelation fundamentally a pursuit of God himself, but we need God's own revealing work in the process in order to gain the benefit of the book. Do you see? Don't go into this book in sense of, like, in your own self-sufficiency. We don't go into this saying, okay, I'm going to gain meaning from it. No, it comes humbly. We, we are put, placing our heart before the Lord, saying, Lord, I want to be the one who not only hears it, but, verse 3, who keeps it. And if I'm going to keep it, I must come humbly before you, saying, Lord, show me your glory, show me your glory, supply to me the grace that you alone can have. Not only is this a pursuit of our God, but we must come in dependence upon him to reveal the very truths to us so that we might benefit from his grace. So let's pursue the Lord through the book of Revelation, and let's gain the benefit of the book. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have not left us alone. We trust, even as we jump into this journey, God, we pray that this study would be fruitful. That once again, it would not be a a, a religious information gathering, but our hearts would be set before you to be challenged, to be changed, to be comforted, but also to be convicted toward holiness. So, Father, I pray, I pray even now that you would reveal the glory of Jesus Christ to us as we get into this text. Reveal Christ to us. What else do we need? What else do we need but to behold the Lamb who was slain, who has overcome. And God, I uniquely just pray, as it's being brought to mind, I pray that as we would encounter something of Christ in this text, that we would also be brought to this this place of renewed worship. That we would join in heaven's anthem, crying out, worthy is the lamb who is slain. That we would join in with all of earth as it erupts in praise to the one who alone can bring true change and true renewal. So we place those petitions at your feet and ask you, oh God, to work in power for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And We pray these things in Jesus' name.